I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by writer, stand-up and sketch comedian, and content creator, Sean Bay. Stay tuned. You know, there's a certain milestone that's achieved when, as an individual and as a collective, you can start seeing humor in yourself. And the joy of recognizing that it's not just okay to make fun of yourself, but that it's important. And speaking of important, thank you once again for listening to the show, rating and subscribing to the podcast, sharing it with your friends, and I guess perhaps with your enemies too, and for following on the socials at Dr. Abhaydandekar. So a few months ago, I stumbled across a video by stand-up comedian, writer, actor, and sketch comic, Sean Begg. The setup was a scenario of a dinner party of South Asian American celebrities, from Hasan Minaj and Lily Singh, Deepak Chopra and Padma Lakshmi, to Cal Penn and Mindy Kaling, and several others. Sean was doing some pretty hilarious impressions of all of them, and it actually did make me laugh out loud, and really think about what it signified, that the state of evolution and reflection was now taking the important leap of smartly being able to laugh at ourselves. Now, Sean is originally from Michigan, and according to him, became a dentist to make his parents happy. While he's been creating really funny content online for years on YouTube, Funny or Die, and BuzzFeed, he's also co-hosted the Bollywood Boys podcast with Sagar Sheikh, and as part of the UCB Theater in Los Angeles, he's the founding member of an all-South Asian sketch team called the Get Brown. I caught up with Sean for a conversation about the life of a comedy artist and writer, and we started with something that we both have in common as two practicing healthcare providers. As I asked him about how it feels when his worlds of dentistry and comedy collide, about keeping those worlds separate, and about how it's informed him to be a better artist. Uh, yeah, I, I did have a patient who had like been seeing me for like a year or two. And then I came in one day to see him for uh, an exam. And he just had this look on his face and he's like, I Googled you. And I was yeah. like, oh God. And he's like, you're, you're a comedian, aren't you? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am. And then we had to like get into it. Yeah, for no other reason than it's just awkward. And like, mm. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I just get really uncomfortable with patients having to talk about comedy with them. I wonder, I mean, they're, they're both relatively, because I've, I've gone through that a little bit, right? I mean, in the sort of pediatric office, you're, you want to be business. And yet at the same time, sort of like, I want to be normal. And I, wanna, I want yeah. to know that like, there's more to me than just the white coat or whatever. And, yeah. and especially in dentistry, right? I mean, comedy, dentistry, for the people you're working with, they're in, in a way disarming. Right. For like, yeah. you know, you you have people who are vulnerable in front of you or they're, they're, they're trying to delve into things and, you know, whether it's oral flora or like, you know, people's own sense of humors, are there some parallels here that draw at least the attention for you that you're like, okay, some of the skill sets here are actually pretty, pretty similar. A good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. I mean, there is, uh, there, there's maybe a little bit of overlap, but like, I wouldn't say I'm like performing, uh, and like, you know, doing, you know, material in front of them, but you're right in the sense that, I mean, yeah, being a, a healthcare provider, a big part of that is like 
being conversational and being a human being in front of them and relating to them on that level and, you know, being charming and disarming. Uh, yeah. I would say that it goes into, uh, yeah, yeah, the comedy world as well. Uh, just in terms of like the general vibe you, you carry with you, uh, in spaces, you know, part of writing material is sort of developing this empathy for, okay, Hey, I I'm an observationalist. I'm making observations that hopefully people will find relatable. You know, does, does being that provider sort of like open your window into saying, yeah, man, I mean, part of what I do is I observe people's behaviors. I observe what makes them tick. And mm -hmm. in some way, because I'm, I'm a helper, you know, mm -hmm. um, I, I can be more observant and be more empathic. And maybe that just leads to more creativity. Yeah. I mean, you might've just opened up uh, my mind to something <laughs> <laughs> that I've kind of subconsciously been aware of, but like, yeah, have never articulated like that before. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think there's definitely something to uh, having a certain perspective as a comedian and a writer. Yeah, you are kind of observing people a lot and uh, picking up on different things. And uh, yeah, you're, you're doing the same thing as a healthcare provider. Are there times when you're up on stage and I, I'm going to guess no, mm. but are there times when you're up on stage or doing um, or creating content where you're just kind of longing to say, man, I can't wait to get this over. Let me get back into the office and see some patients or vice versa. Like, man, <laughs> let this day just end so I can just, you know, get out of here and do something else. Uh, definitely the latter. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there, yeah, there, there's been days, you know, when the theaters were open, where like, yeah, yeah I have like a show to get to. And, uh, yeah, I just kind of have like back to back patients or uh, emergency patient to see. And it, got hard to juggle at certain times and until i got to the point thankfully where uh, i have a practice with my brother now who's also a dentist so yeah i can kind of structure the schedule in a way so that on days where i have something to shoot or an audition uh, my schedule is clear and uh, yeah he can just kind of take over and vice versa you know if he has anything else to do but yeah i don't know if there's ever a time where i'm doing comedy and i'm like i wish i was drilling Right. I, I mean, you know, and I wonder, like, because maybe some of that pressure is is taken off. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, does it does it allow you to actually be better prepared, have better outcomes in both because of that? Definitely. I think, yeah, having my own practice now allows for me to be able to be 100 percent present in either area. Um, yeah, certainly in dental school, it was a lot tougher to balance both. I, I was like spread very thin, but as the years have gone by and I have more autonomy and I'm in control of my own schedule now, I, I can make it so that, okay, yeah, when I'm in the office, I'm fully there and I'm 100% a dentist. And then the opposite is true too. Yeah. When I'm writing or performing or something, I'm going to, I'm hundred percent there, you know, which is, you know, also speaks to how and why I want to keep things like fully separate so that yeah. I can just be fully present in one thing. Yeah. You know, therefore, as you are fully present for both, is it an eventuality that to be sort of, I wouldn't say perfect, but to master one or the other, do you ever feel like there's the impetus to have to choose a lane? Yeah. I mean, 
Uh, it's definitely a, a goal for like to have it be my, my full-time career eventually comedy, but I'll cross that bridge when and if I get to it. But I, I don't know at this point whether or not I can ever like fully leave dentistry. I may have like my foot still in it uh, in some capacity. Eventually, ideally, that is the goal. Yeah. By, by the way, are you still a Bollywood boy? <laughs> Yeah, Bollywood is where a lot of my kind of, I don't know how to articulate it well enough, but like, I wouldn't say passion, but like, just like the spectacle of movie making and, and show business, I don't think was as flashy anywhere else as it was in, in Bollywood. It was one of the first kind of things that grabbed me in pop culture, for sure. Like the first time I saw DDLJ or, or any of those kind of early 90s Bollywood movies, for sure. I think like growing up in that era definitely like planted some sort of seed in my mind of like, oh, this is what showbiz is. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Sean Baig. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with comedian, actor, and writer, Sean Big. Well, I wonder if that's like the easiest connector, like the first sort of like icebreaker, you know, among brown people or for those people who are, are being introduced to sort of a brown creator or a brown artist, if that's like just the easiest passport that's available to, you know, open a window into entertainment that like, hey, let's start with Bollywood. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think in most, most cases it is. When you think about like, you know, what is going to actually resonate with people? Is there a formula for that? Can you just manufacture things or, or is there a little bit of, you know, kind of instinct and intangible quality to being able to sort of say, Hey, look, I got this idea. I'm going to make it into a bit um, and, and zoom with it. Is it, is it honestly like, because there's no real formula to it, that's the formula. Yeah, it's a little bit of both, but I would say it's more so the latter, more so like instinct and um, just what you feel in your bones is funny and good and is going to work. I mean, through the years of like doing stuff online and doing stuff on stage, like, you know, there are people who just consume what's going on constantly. Uh, on TikTok and Twitter and whatever, and then just jump right on the trend and spit something out. And, you know, it, it, it might hit, it might not, you know, just because you're, you're talking about something that's relevant doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to resonate with people. I think that the formula is much more reliant on, as a writer performer, your instincts mm. about, I think this is good, that I think somebody is going to resonate with it. Let me just put it out there. I, in my experience, it's been much more the latter. The, 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 the more ease there, there comes with making something, meaning like the more it comes from your instincts, usually the better it's going to perform. 
are you of the school of thought that like more is better that like hey let there just be this kind of like catharsis or <laughs> social media vomit of of everything that i've got at all times or is there value to you know timing and picking and choosing and and for that matter like having a strategy of in some ways almost like laying low and and then you know having having some purposeful intent behind things yeah definitely quality over quantity i think it's not sheer volume alone that's going to make it work for you i i think people are sometimes fooled into thinking that when they do see somebody who is uh, releasing a high volume of content yeah. and it's doing well what they're forgetting is like yeah there are people who can do a lot of high quality high volume stuff there are those rare people i've seen them on like TikTok and vine or whatever yeah um but yeah in my opinion it's, it's like don't just put something out just to put it out yeah you know it, it can t absolutely flop it doesn't matter if you just had a hit right before I'm much more for better and for worse, like precious about like what I put out and the writing and, and intention that I put behind things. I, I want it to be good. I want like in a month or so, or even a year from so look back on it and like not cringe, you know, that's, that's definitely one of the goals. I yes. want to be able to look at my old stuff and be like, you know what, that was, that was good. I stand right. by it. You know? I think not cringing is a great, like sort of metric for sure yeah. you know to, yeah, to have yeah. in general like hey yeah. let this not be that i look back and i start cringing well, yeah. and in, in that same way as someone who is intentionally or at least outwardly a south asian american and but not necessarily all the time that your content is hitting specifically to the south asian american audience uh -huh. you have to in some ways code switch a fair amount because you're either thinking about an audience or thinking about a, a bit and sort of internally or externally be mindful of that? Huh. Good question. Um, in my personal work, I honestly don't think about it too much. I, I just, I, I know that like, okay, whoever's going to relate to this, they're going to find it and they're just going to relate to it. And I don't need like there to be subtitles or anything. Right. Yeah. Um, but with my sketch comedy group, The Get Brown, who formed at UCB, the, the theater in LA, that definitely is, was a conversation and is an ongoing conversation with the stuff that we make together of, okay, um, how can we both be fully authentic in the stories that we tell and uh, what we're trying to do and the characters we write, but also kind of have some kind of entry point for people who have no idea about south asian culture how can we do that with, without diluting our, our message you know uh there are or was a sketch where we just th there was a kind of a throwaway line where we just mentioned pond it, it had nothing to do with the sketch really but it, we just kind of mentioned it yeah and then our director was like i think you need some kind of like device to explain what that means to the audience because in la it, the crowd is diverse you're going to get a ton of people who are not just you know white but like yeah not south asian in general yeah. and they're yeah. not going to know they could be any kind of person of color right so you might need some kind of explanation what that is so we were like okay well why and there we may be there may be south asian americans who who have no idea what bond is either sure sure yeah i mean absolutely so we're like okay well why don't we use that as an opportunity for another joke 
So what we did was when there were these moments where we mentioned South Asian specific things, we had like little video vignettes before a sketch where we do an infomercial about what Pawn is. And so that's an opportunity for us to play other characters and, and really in this kind of broad, goofy way, explain what Pawn is and what it's been used for. And I, think I, I, I think this has Super Bowl commercial kind of written all <laughs> over it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. We're going to get offers right away. Right away, right. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Sean Baig. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with comedian, actor, and writer, Sean Big. You know, you're, you're part of this kind of peer group, this group in LA. And then, you know, you've done this great uh, Brown Hollywood dinner bit, which, which I love. Is it important to sort of like have these peer groups to be able to one, kind of like to sort of be able to laugh at yourselves? And then two, go through this process and go through sort of like the creation or even the career as part of a cohort. Yeah, 100%. It's invaluable, I think, as a comedian. Um, in stand-up, the, the life of a stand-up is like a little bit more like you're a lone wolf, just bouncing around from mic to mic and, you know, kind of going it alone. And, you know, there is camaraderie there. You know, there's a lot of hangouts that happen in, in the stand-up world. And there's a lot of camaraderie and brotherhood and sisterhood that comes from that. But yeah, when it comes to like the work itself, it's obviously not collaborative at all. So I found myself gravitating much more towards like sketch comedy and doing character work, like cracking jokes uh, in a room with like 10 other funny people who are your friends, who you trust and whose instincts you trust. and also going through the motions together, going through uh, the industry and rising through the ranks together. Is it helpful also to sort of get better and, and learn the craft? Can, can you teach being funny? Is there inherently something about this group of people who are in a room trying to either write or create that there's just some intangible quality that's just there? Or is it something that everyone has that just kind of needs to be activated in the right environment? I don't think you can teach people to be funny. <laughs> I, I do think it's mostly innate and like instinctual, like 99% maybe. But there is a lot of value in taking classes, not so much to like make something out of nothing. Like if you don't have it, you don't have it. Yeah. But what's valuable in classes in like sketch writing classes or improv classes is a good teacher will be able to make you the funniest version of yourself. Like 
every different kind of funny person will have their own unique voice, unique flavor, unique take on things. And so a good teacher will be able to like really make those colors come to the surface for sure. Almost like, you know, let you rise to the top of your own sort of potential there, right? Right. They'll be able to kind of see in, in a sense of like, oh, this person's good at the trumpet. They should be re- they should kind of lean into that. Yeah. Oh, this person's good at the drums. They should like lean into that. A good teacher can bring that out of you for sure. And then, you know, yeah, some people, they just can't play an instrument, you know? So <laughs> it's just not, for, it's just not for them. For sure. But, the, but I guess the other part is, is that, right. I mean, funny and, and humor take so many different forms, right? There, there are some who are, they're as funny um, in the written voice as they are in the performance voice. And, and others who are like, well, no, I, I, I really, really value my writing. But if yeah. you ask me to like perform it, there's just no way. Yeah. Uh, it takes time to kind of figure out what uh, way your comedic voice will best manifest, you know? Yeah. When I first started out, I, I kind of had to try it all on, you know, like I said, yeah. I tried stand up out, I tried improv out, tried characters and sketch and yeah, nothing really felt as natural or like exciting and joyful to me as like doing sketch comedy and, and or solo characters uh, is kind of my jam, you know? And in that way, is it, is it e- easier to sort of like get the quick wins and in some way relate more easily and, and quickly and be more nimble for your audience? As opposed to maybe something different where you have to almost like develop a, a longitudinal relationship with both the work and with the, the audience. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I certainly, uh, the to- totally different mediums, yeah, uh, sketch versus like a more narrative yeah. uh, project. But I mean, in my experience, you know, sketch takes its time too, you know, it, mm. I wouldn't say it's a very like quick uh, win or, 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 or something that is, is immediately, you know, rewarding yeah. uh, sketches, you know, they take weeks, uh, you know, maybe months to like get into the right place. Sure. Uh, yeah. You, when you're on a sketch team, traditionally, yeah, it'll take like a whole month to get it to, to where it's supposed to be. And then you just get it on stage and then it's gone and you got to move on to the next thing, you know? <laughs> and I guess the audience isn't always cognizant of that, right? No, I mean, no, like, no. Yeah. They're, they're just sort of like, Hey, that was awesome. All right. Next. Yeah, they may they may not know or be cognizant fully of like how much work is is going into it. I mean, certainly it's it's different in like you know SNL where they only have a week to do it. It, it is right. different, but they they are putting their full time yeah. um, blood, sweat, and tears into it. You know, and there's got to be then there's a pace and a rhythm to how you like yeah. develop characters yeah. and and themes and whatnot too. I imagine. And, yeah. you know, in that sense, yeah, comparatively, it, it's more rewarding, I guess, to, yeah, just kind of focus up on, on a sketch and th- this three minute little, it's like a little bite of dessert sketch. And then like, you know, hopefully uh, it's good dessert, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. How much of the, you know, you have to develop this kind of shelled exterior, right? You build as a performance artist, for that matter, being resilient through like just rejection in that way. How much does that kind of shell add value to your your skill your creativity does, does the resilience and the sort of armor that you build up does it actually make make you a better artist that's another question i mean it's something that I, i'm trying to figure out in real time yeah i mean i think like you do have to have like a baseline resilience to jump into this kind of career or at least some kind of like delusions of grandeur that <laughs> is effectively uh, a shell, you know, where it's like, yeah, whatever, it's going to happen eventually. 
truly, I, I don't know if, yeah. it, if it makes yeah. you better or not. You know, I think right. over the years, you just kind of get better at tapping into your instincts and what's going to work for you and what's not going to work for you. Yeah. And that, that may come from, yeah, different types of rejections that you'll get. Does it motivate you to create differently? Or does it motivate you to just keep pressing and, and doing the same thing yet in a different way or a better way? Do you ever have like revenge or like even, hey man, I'll, I'll show you that this shit's going to be crazy and you'll be sorry if you didn't <laughs> take your chance on me. Well, here's the thing is like in a micro sense, like when you're performing on stage, like the first time you do a sketch or even the first time you do a stand-up bit, you're getting those like micro rejections every time like something doesn't hit yeah and what that does is like sharpen your instincts a little bit yeah every time you perform you're getting a better sense of like okay what is working for me what's not so in a way yeah that i think it, it helps your instincts like become a little bit more clear so that yeah the next time you perform you know having watched the tape or you right. know, jotting down notes after the show of like, okay, this is what we can do differently next time. It's the feedback that you're, you're constantly sort of working into your work, I imagine. You know, I mean, if they laugh, they laugh. If they didn't, they didn't, you know, yeah. and there's not much more you can say about it. It's right. like, right. It's pretty binary. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You want them to laugh, you know, as, as much as a lot of particularly stand-ups are like, yeah, I mean, F the audience, who cares? You know, like, I, I don't care what they think. Like, they're going right. to deal with what I have to say. You want them to laugh, you know what I mean? <laughs> you, want there, you want there to be a relationship, I would yeah. imagine, at some <laughs> yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you fully want them to, like, hate you or, like, leave feeling, like, insulted or offended or something. Have you ever been in a situation where, like, the, the material and the audience... Forget about like the metric of cringing or like being funny or not, but the material and that night, the timing and the audience were just a, just a flat mismatch. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, you got a bomb to like figure out how to get good for sure. Yeah. I mean, the comedy is very, very up and down. I mean, you can have like the best show of your life one night and then literally the night after the worst show of your life. I mean, that, that's, that's part of it. And, and that's part of uh, the resilience that you have to have and that has to get better over time. When, when you leave an audience, um, a room full of people, or you finish a set, or after someone's watched one of your sketches, what do you hope they feel? Or what do you hope they'll, they'll say about you? at that moment when, when they finished sort of consuming your content? I, I just, I hope they had a good time. You know, I hope they <laughs> enjoyed themselves. I hope they get joy from it. You know, honestly, like, yeah, it, it feels good to make people laugh. You know, um, I, I don't want them to feel like uncomfortable <laughs> or like, yeah. oh, that was like, you know, really daring. And he like really, took us to an unexpected place, which, you know, has its value and yes. certain artists do that really well. Right. Personally, that's not the kind of comedian I am. I, I, I just don't do that kind of thing. Does it then in some ways, does it limit the element of surprise where someone's like, Hey, you know what? Yes. I came away with, you know, joy or, or I really sort of had a good time for you. Does it limit the impact of that surprise? If, if that's not something that like, you know, there's more boldness or, or something daring, that's a part of it. Well, in general, I think all good comedy 
does have an element of surprise, even if it's like extremely broad and yeah, maybe kind of feels a little familiar. Laughter comes from surprise. It's when you're completely caught off guard. You take a left turn out of nowhere. You didn't see it coming. It tickles you in a way and you, you laugh, you know? Yeah. I think I'm speaking more to, uh, yeah, people who may have like different flavors in their comedy. People yeah. who like, you know, want people to like feel like disgusted or, <laughs> or, or right. cringe at something or feel like deep sadness in the middle of something. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're just working with like different ingredients there. You know, it's the, it's the um, difference between the sweet bun and the tuna bun. I know exactly. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I mean, I myself, yeah. When I'm in the mood for it, I I, I love to watch that kind of stuff for sure. Yeah, uh, I just have to know what I'm getting into. But yeah, for the most part, the kind of stuff that I just love and and <laughs> and uh, and love to do is like, yeah, just just make people actually laugh out loud. Like, I don't know at this point in my career if I'm like if I want people to like have all these different ingredients right now yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah that may change as i as i get older and as i uh, pick up different things well the ingredients are are making people laugh out loud and they're winning many uh, audience members to come over your way thank you so much for joining us this was a treat and hopefully uh we'll have another conversation at some point down the road absolutely thank you so much for having me absolutely sean and please keep the sketches coming and the dental floss flowing my friend Let's celebrate Black History Month through the lens of Black health and wellness. So please visit the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture to learn more and to understand a people's journey and a nation's story. Till next time, I'm Abhaydar Nigar. Durrani and you can check out ruckusavenueradio.com for more information and for the latest on station programming and more.